This is Truth Encounter, and our investigation of the New Testament takes us today to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the Apostle Paul lays down the gauntlet. If Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then our faith is useless. But if he did rise, those who believe in him have found the answer to life's greatest question. How can I know what happens the split second after I die? Let's join our discussion leader, Dave Wardson, as he talks about how common the message of crucifixion and resurrection has become in the Texas culture where he ministers. And yet, how easy it is for many to still miss its significance. The gospel is so common in our area that it doesn't mean anything. You understand what I mean by that? You see, if I announced to our area that I was going to talk about the gospel, big deal. If I announced in Corinth that we were going to have a big meeting in Corinth and a guy's going to come and he's going to talk about someone that rose again from the dead, someone that he actually saw who came back to life again and he was going to talk to us about it, you'd get a crowd. Paul did get a crowd on the streets of Corinth. That's what he did. In, in schools, Jewish schools, that's what he said. And he got crowds. They got crowds all over the first century. Because it was news. It's not news at all anymore. If you say Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, great, what else happened this week? Big deal, so what? Everyone knows that. And what I want you to feel a little bit is that something that becomes so commonplace begins to not be appreciated. And when it's not appreciated, our hearts become hardened to it. And the deepest strength that I know of the deepest power that I know of, and as I look around this audience, there's many of you who have received this living vitality in your life. Not emotionalism at all. It includes that, but it's much bigger than that. It's a deep solidity of peace and confidence and a meaning for life. See, some of you are asking, why in the world should I even live? Why live? I think some of the teenagers ask, you know, mom and dad, you want me to work hard in high school? You want me to work hard to go so I can go to college? Why should I? Mom and dad, you worked hard. Mom and dad, you went to college. Mom and dad, you have a good job. Mom and dad, you have a nice home. And you're miserable. You're not really that happy. You don't really care that much for me or for anybody else. Why should I follow your big dream? Who cares? I have more fun with my friends, more closeness with my friends. So what if I only live for a year? So what if I take the wrong drug? Who cares? We might all get blown up anyway. That's where a lot of kids are in the U.S. today. They're saying, I don't buy it. I don't have a cause that's worth living for. I don't have a meaning worth giving my life for. Well, we've got it in this room. We've got it. And you need to have it in your home, and I need to have it in my home. And we need to receive the tradition, because it's true. And whether or not I think it's true or not doesn't change its reality. Because it is true. And it's such a blessed truth that when it permeates your heart and soul, it gives you a cause that's not only worth dying for, but it's worth giving everything for.
and life therefore becomes very meaningful. Paul was reminding the Corinthians, and I'm reminding you about the basics. Have you received the tradition, the solid apostolic tradition of the gospel, and on which you've taken your stand? You made a decision in the past, but that decision right now is what you're building your life upon. You see, salvation isn't we receive Christ, Phew, I know where the exit sign is. When it's time to get out, then I run for the exit sign, run down the fire escape, and I go, Phew, I made it. That's not what salvation is. It's not what believing and receiving the tradition is all about. When you receive the tradition, it becomes the foundation of your life. The word that's used here is, this is the basis, the foundation upon which you're standing in your life. It's what holds your life together. It's what establishes your life. And he goes on and talks about this. On which you stand, and by this gospel, you are being saved. I want to ask you, are you being saved? Am I being saved? Yeah, you should be. You say, no, I was saved in the past. That's right. You were saved in the past. There was a moment in time. You don't have to remember exactly when that moment is. That's not what's important. The important thing is that you know for sure that you have totally put your confidence for eternal life in what Christ has done. And we're going to talk about that objective reality and gift and message that he gives to you. The important thing is that there was a moment when you said, Jesus, I'm going to totally depend upon you for my eternal destiny. And I'm going to take my stand on that message. But it doesn't end there. That's something that we've communicated to people that's very wrong. I've even heard messages that will say, you know, once saved, always saved. And the implication after that is, though that's a true statement, the implication is you receive Christ, you make a decision, you get baptized. I took care of that. Now what do I do? I go out and live my life the way everyone else lives it. And there's no further discussion. And that leaves all the beauty behind so much. Jesus is not only your Savior in the past, He's not only your Savior in the future, He is that. And if you've genuinely received Christ, if you've genuinely put your confidence for eternal life in the objective gospel message, then you were saved in the past and you're going to be saved in the future, but that future and present also has, that future and past has a present. You are being saved in the present. What does that mean? It means that the Jesus that I'm depending upon is at work in my life. He is delivering me. You see, contrary to what Satan tries to tell us, slavery is not in here. Slavery and being all bound up and having all kinds of rules and regulations and all kinds of, of domineering rules over your life, it's not in here. It's out there. If you go out there into the world system and in your everyday life you stop allowing Jesus to save you from the power of sin in your daily life, then even a believer can become a slave. And that's terrible because he isn't a slave. He's a son or a daughter of God. But they can act just like a slave. And Satan can bind their life up completely. In fact, Satan works very, very hard to do that. 
And that's what Paul was concerned about with the Corinthians. That's what we've been studying in this book. This was a group of believers who at a time in the past, who at a time in the past had received the tradition. They had built their life on that tradition. Therefore, he can say in chapter 1, I am confident about when Christ comes that you'll be with him, that we'll appear with him in glory, we'll be together. Paul's certain about their past and their future, but he's struggling very much with them in the present because some of the Corinthians, in fact, a good influential group in the church is not being saved in the present. They're living immorally. They're living for wrong priorities. And that should warn us. I can do that. I cannot be being saved, not allowing Christ to dominate my life, to deliver me from temptation, to help me. And the tragedy is that when Satan does that in so-called believers' lives, then the message of the gospel is demeaned. And Satan's been working overtime to do that this past year. And he's always done that. I think it's very important for all of us, all of us to ask ourselves, where are we? Am I being saved this week? Can you see the active work of God in your life this week? When you go to do something that is opposed to the word of God, does anything happen in your life? Does anyone inside of you say, don't do that. I love you. I care about you. That's going to hurt you. Lean upon me. Trust me. Let me teach you. Let me help you to stand against the peer pressure. Let me help you stand against the opposition. Let me save you today from yourself, from the evil one, from peer pressure that could destroy you. You see, brothers and sisters, there's a present tense to salvation. Are you being saved? And am I being saved? And Paul was very concerned that these Corinthians have this full-orbed Christian experience. And I think we need to pray very much about that. Because I think that we have very objective teaching in the Word. But I think it's very easy for it to be just something that we hear on Sunday morning. In fact, sometimes we don't even hear it Sunday morning. And it has no impact during the week. You say, what can we do about that? It begins right here in my heart, and it begins in your heart with the authenticity and the openness and the listening deep within our heart to the Holy Spirit. And I think all of us, we need to start to pray fervently. We need to get a tremendous burden to pray that the Lord will deliver us from the Corinthian catastrophe. They objectively had the right message, but it wasn't moving in their heart day by day. So Paul says, you've been saved in the past. You need to take your stand upon that tradition. And this is the gospel. This is the good news that you are saved by. And then he adds this little phrase, if you hold firmly. Now you say, well, Dave, does that mean that everything is up for grabs? That's a hard phrase, isn't it? Does that mean, well, maybe I'm not going to make it? No, that's not what it means. What Paul means is that if you genuinely receive Christ in the past, 
If you genuinely open your heart to Christ, then Christ came to live in your life. And what Paul firmly believes is that Christ really does something. Christ really gives new life. Christ really does generate the fruit of the Spirit. And what Paul is saying is that genuine believers do hold fast. As we look at a life, they don't wander away forever from the truth. A believer might wander away from the gospel. It might appear that they're living like a child of the devil. It might appear that they're just out there, but they can't do it consistently forever. They just can't. Because there's a genuine, living, Christ-like part inside of them that brings them back through the power of the Spirit and they hold fast. But I want all of you to beware. And that's why I said what I did. I think it's very important to have open conversations. Just because someone sits here week after week doesn't mean that they have accepted this message and they genuinely know Christ. And the reason you say, well, some of our kids that have been raised... Man, they were raised in this, they heard it, now they've gone away from it, and now they're totally away from it. Possibly some of them are in a wandering time, and they'll come back because it was a genuine commitment. But when I work with someone like that, one of the very first things I begin to work on is, have you genuinely received Christ? You see, I've worked with all kinds of people where I say, what did Jesus do for you? He died on the cross for my sins. Good answer. What verse in the Bible says that? John 3.16 tells me that. Romans 5.8 tells me that. What else did Jesus do for you? He rose again from the dead. That's a good answer. How do you know that's true? All four Gospels witness to the fact that he rose again from the dead. I'll say, what do you have to do to go to heaven? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But it's just that. You know, my dad had a dear friend. He's probably shared this with some of you. My dad had a dear friend who, in the early days of robotics, was working with robots. And my dad had this scientist come to him one day. They were eating supper. And right in the middle of the conversation, this scientist looked at my dad and said, You know, Jack, I've come to believe that my robot can receive Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And my dad said, No, he cannot. Oh, yes, he can, the scientist said. And Jack, my dad said, how do you know he can receive Christ? He said, because I, the other day, I got my robot set up, set him down at church, I said to the robot, what did Jesus Christ do for you? Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Did Jesus Christ rise again the third day? Jesus Christ rose again the third day. Give me the verse, object him. I mean, the, the computer gave him the whole, every verse in the Bible for that. I'm in a computer readout sheet. Hundreds of verses. What must a person do to be sure that I have eternal life? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And my scientist friend said to my dad, see, he's born again. My dad said, no, he isn't born again. He said, yes, he is. He's just as born again as a lot of people who sit Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. You know the difference. Because what Paul is saying is that being born again is a personal commitment. Computers don't make personal commitments. They're programmed. None of you can be programmed. My kids can't be programmed. Your kids can't be programmed. You can't be programmed. 
And deep inside of every one of our hearts, we decide, have we genuinely, personally committed? Now, I want to share something with you. You don't need to analyze that to death about your personal commitment. I've worked with some dear people. I have a friend that used to call me in the middle of the night saying, Dave, I think I need to get saved again. I say, how many times have we done this now? He would say, well, the guy just came, and he asked us if we said this particular phrase, if we raised our hand with our left hand or with our right hand, and I'm not sure I raised my foot just right. I mean, he, this guy would go through the biggest rigmarole you've ever said. He was always analyzing this. And we would go through again and again. Have you trusted the person of Christ deep in your heart? And this guy would be weeping over the telephone, just weeping. I, I love Jesus. I'm thankful that he died for me. I believe that he did it for me. And I'd hear him sobbing on the phone, and I'd say, well, relax. Do you think that a Savior who stretched his arms for you and, and hung on a cross for you and then poured out his lifeblood for you, do you think he's going to quibble over the words that you used or, or exactly how much you meant it? He isn't. He wants to save you. But what I'm trying to get across is that it's not just up here. It's not a mechanical computer thing. It's a personal thing. And that's what's wrong with some so-called Christians. Because that's what they are. So-called Christians because they're like a robot. It's never reached down here. And Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to remember, to remember it's down here. And I want to use this phrase, if you hold fast. That's not to scare you. It's to encourage you. You will hold fast if you've genuinely believed. True believers hold fast because the Spirit of God is in their life and the Spirit of God gives a new creation. He gives a new heart and that heart is indestructible in the hands of Jesus. But Paul is strongly warning the person who knows all the intellectual answers but's never genuinely responded. Paul goes on and says this, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Now this phrase, you have believed in vain, it's not a reference to an individual believer who believed at one point and then evidently turned away from it and therefore he believed in vain. That's not what Paul is talking about. He introduces the theme of this chapter right here, if you believed in vain, is the question that's being raised. And Paul would say to every one of us today, we have believed in vain if Jesus did not rise again from the dead. If Jesus Christ is not alive from the dead, then everything we're doing and all that our church stands for and everything that this book stands for should be thrown out. It's worse than Enquire because it, it appeals to us as being a serious, authentic, divinely inspired book. And if Jesus did not rise again from the dead, junk it. That's what Paul is saying. It's vain. It's empty. It's worthless. And that's the thesis of his chapter. If the resurrection is not true, then our faith is vain. But on the opposite end of, the, of that spectrum, if Jesus did rise again from the dead, then we have found the answer. We have found reality. We have found eternal hope and destiny, and we can be confident. And that's the big contrast of the chapter. 
Now he objectively lays out the gospel, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now what's the first importance? Number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And we're going to have to end right there. Our time is up. But I want you to look into it. The content of the gospel. The content of the gospel. What is the objective message that Paul received? And I want you to be thinking about these four basic realities. Number one, Christ is the Messiah. It's Christ who died for our sins. And this Christ is a very specific Christ that we'll talk about that's revealed in the Word of God. Number two, this Christ has done something very specific for us. He died for our sins, which is a phrase that's very general. What does it mean that he died? What kind of a death was it? What was the meaning of that death? What was the purpose of that death? What does it mean that he died for our sins? Did he die for the benefit of our sins? Does he help our sins out? What does that mean? That's a very general phrase. What does it mean for our sins? He was buried. Why does Paul stress that Jesus was actually buried? Why does he stress that? And fourth, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. We'll look at the meaning of these four phrases And then we're going to look at all of those appearances. I want you to look at who the witnesses are. You could take any of the teenagers, if they wanted to, could take this article and go get the book and go around the country and start interviewing the people that are generating this Elvis cult. And you could ask yourself, is this an authentic witness? This person that said they looked at a wood paneling door and the head of Elvis appeared, do I want to base my eternal destiny on the validity of their testimony? Now, don't laugh. You need to think very seriously about that. Do you want to base your eternal destiny on the witnesses that are making these kind of reports? And Time Magazine obviously thinks the whole thing is a farce. Some people think that about the Bible. And what you say, well, how do I handle that? I'll tell you how I handle it. I've gone through long periods of my life, and I come back to it again and again and again. I say, David, did Paul tell the truth? Do I believe Paul was a man who told the truth? Or do I think he was a big fibber? You need to answer that question. Do I believe Peter told the truth? Read what the scripture says about Peter. And read what happened in his life. And then ask yourself, was this guy a great big deceiver? A big liar? 500 people saw Jesus alive at once. And Paul's going to make a claim that you could go and interview those people. A lot of them were still alive when he wrote. Do I believe all 500 people were wrong? It was all just an aberration. All just a figment of their imagination. And what I want to share with you from the depths of my heart is I've come to the conclusion as a gift from the Lord in my heart, but I've worked on it, and I've thought about it very carefully, and I've doubted it, and then I've wrestled with it. You say, Dave, why are you a preacher? Why are you doing what you're doing today? 
I don't do it for the money. I don't do it for the prestige. But from the depths of my heart, with just all the integrity that's in my heart, I do it because I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. And therefore, the moment that I get ready to die, I know it'll be okay. Because I know whom I believed in. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now that's just laying it out the way it is. Christianity and the Bible can handle all the questions we throw at it. But what breaks my heart is to see a surface commitment to it and all the right answers. But it hasn't gotten down here. Because that becomes very, very fertile ground for a very deceptive work of the evil one. So Paul says to us, I want to remind you about the first things. And the first thing is this blessed, life-giving gospel tradition.